0: a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. Two famous men died in the month of November in the year 1963. In fact, they died on the exact same day. It was November 22. One of the men was more famous than the other at the time of their deaths. The more famous one was the President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. President Kennedy was killed by an assassin's bullet in Dallas, Texas. But on that very same day, November 22, 1963, another fairly famous man died. He was Clive Staples Lewis, better known by his initials C.S. C.S. Lewis. Lewis was very well known, even around the world, for his writings of fantasy and fiction, as well as his writings on Christianity. Altogether, he authored 30 books. One of Lewis's better-known books on Christianity is entitled, simply, Mere Christianity. In a foreword of a special edition of that book, Kathleen Norris puts Lewis in historical context, and I quote, This is a book that begs to be seen in its historical context as a bold act of storytelling and healing in a world gone mad. It was in 1942, just 24 years after the end of a brutal war that had destroyed an entire generation of its young men, Great Britain was at war again. As a young man, C.S. Lewis had served in the awful trenches of World War I, and in 1940, when the bombing of Britain began... He took up duties as an air raid warden and gave talks to men in the Royal Air Force. Norris reminds us that since he fought in the First Deadly World War, Lewis was in a good position to speak to those who might be killed in the Second World War. The British Broadcasting Company, the BBC, asked Lewis to give a series of radio addresses, just short talks on various aspects of biblical Christianity. Those radio addresses were broadcast from the year 1942 to 1944. Now, originally, those talks were published in three shorter works. The first was entitled Broadcast Talks, then came Christian Behavior, and finally Beyond Personality. Those three were later combined into one longer book with the title Mere Christianity. In the introduction, Lewis writes that he's not interested in defending any church, be it the Church of England or the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or whatever. However, says Lewis, he's very eager to defend mere Christian belief. That is, Christian belief distilled down to its biblical basics. He says, quote, I am a very ordinary layman of the Church of England, but in this book I'm not trying to convert anyone to my own position ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors, was to explain and defend the belief that's been common to nearly all Christians at all times. Lewis wisely observes that we as believers ought to discuss our internal differences, those differences in traditions or rituals or doctrines, only in the presence of one another as believers that we should never discuss these differences in the presence of unbelievers. If we do that, says Lewis, we're only going to deter those unbelievers from becoming followers of Jesus. How very true that is. Just yesterday I was talking with a young man born in China. He told me that his brother had been a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, but that this brother then was the only believer in his entire family. So he asked me, knowing that I was a retired pastor, how are Protestant pastors different from Catholic priests? Now in my younger years, I might have entered into a big debate at this point about the disputes between Catholics and Protestants. But I sensed this young man was searching, seeking for something. He was asking me an honest question, and he seemed to ask it in a very humble way. So I didn't spend too much time on the topic of married Protestant pastors and celibate priests, but rather I focused on Jesus. Let's be honest, the differences between the various branches of Christianity are only confusing to most non-believers, and many of them, perhaps most, are troubled by these many differences. I mean, it sort of makes sense from their way of thinking. If the followers of Jesus disagree so sharply among themselves and disagree to the point of hatred, how can I as a non-believer ever figure things out? And why, seeing all this disagreement and even hatred, why would I as a non-believer ever want to follow Jesus? Look at how much they hate, how much they get angry, how much in history they've even tried to kill one another. C.S. Lewis is very wise on this point to not discuss differences in the presence of non-believers. Lewis goes on to say that there are indeed certain doctrinal questions, certain doctrinal questions indeed, that he's definitely on one side or the other of the fence. He says he personally takes a, a definite position on some things, and that will put him at odds with other believers. Yet, he writes, "...I will say nothing on those points." For I am not writing to expound something I would call my religion, but rather to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born, and whether I like it or not. And so it is. I myself will find that I disagree with a few minor points that Lewis makes. My interpretation of the Bible, along with many other denominations, at times will move me to disagree slightly with him, here or there. But overwhelmingly, I find the writings of C.S. Lewis very, very helpful. And I would disagree, and don't all Christians disagree at certain points, with other leading thinkers and theologians, be it St. Augustine or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Karl Barth. And I think Jesus himself will allow us to do some disagreements, as long as we keep those disagreements internal. As long as we're talking among ourselves as believers and not out to the world. Remember, there's a huge watching world out there. Non-believers and believers of other religions are watching us carefully. They're listening especially to our tone. Will they hear the love of Jesus in our voice, in our attitude? Will we talk and act respectfully toward one another? You know, England in the time of C.S. Lewis was increasingly filled with doubters and with skeptics and with seekers. In the 1940s, during the war, thousands were thinking that Christianity and even Jesus himself were hopelessly out of date, very old-fashioned, even dangerous to society, In our world today, we have millions more who think that way. So we must speak then of Jesus and of other genuine followers of Jesus in love and in respect. So here's C.S. Lewis. I'm just going to be reading his word here and there. I'll paraphrase a few words I'm reading from his book, Mere Christianity, book two, what Christians believe, chapter five. Here and there I'll I'll edit a little bit and make the sense a little clearer, but essentially his words are unchanged. Quote, The perfect surrender of self and humiliation of self were undergone by Jesus Christ. Perfect because he was God, surrender and humiliation because he was man. Now, Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in his conquest of death, and find a new life in him. Now, this means something much more than simply trying to follow Jesus' teaching. People often ask when the next step of evolution, the step to something beyond current human nature, will happen. But in the Christian view, it has happened already. You see, in Christ, a whole new kind of human being has appeared, with a new kind of life which began in Christ and is put into us. How is this done? Now please remember how we acquired the old, ordinary kind of human life. We derive that life from others, from our father and mother and all our ancestors, without our consent, and by a very curious process, a process involving pleasure, pain, and danger. This process of creating human biological life you would never have guessed. Most of us spend a good many years in childhood trying to guess it, and some children, when they are first told it, don't believe it. Now, the God who arranged that biological process is the same God who arranges how the new kind of life, the Christ life, is to be created in us. We must be prepared for it being somewhat odd, too. God did not consult us when he invented sex, and he surely has not consulted us either when he invented this. There are three things that spread the Christ life to us. First, baptism, second, belief, and third, that mysterious action with different Christians call by different names, Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. Those are the three ordinary methods. I'm not saying there may not be special cases where it is spread without one or more of these. Let me stop there a moment and briefly interrupt Lewis. Many denominations find biblical evidence for the Christ life being formed in us, mainly through the preaching of God's word and us hearing the word preached. Paul says it in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God creates the new Christ life in us by his word as that word is applied by his Holy Spirit. And then... I think it's accurate to say from the Bible that God indeed strengthens this new life, this Christ life, as we continue to hear God's word and as we, as Lewis says, continue to believe it and as we continue to partake of the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, let's continue now with Lewis's words, I cannot see for myself why these things, those three things he mentioned, should be conductors of this new kind of life. But then, if one did not happen to know, I should never have seen any connection between a particular physical pleasure and the appearance of a new human being in this world. We just have to take reality as it comes to us. I have explained why I have to believe that Jesus was and is God. And it seems plain as a matter of history that he taught his followers that the new life was begun in us in this way. In other words, I believe it on God's authority. Do not be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you've been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there's such a place as New York City. I've not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. Thus, Lewis says, and let me summarize here, it's on God's authority that he believes Jesus is both God and human. Lewis believes on God's authority that Jesus creates his life in us through faith, and he believes in the great value of baptism in the Lord's Supper for this new life. Now, let's go back to Lewis. Do not think that I am setting up baptism and belief in Holy Communion as things that will do instead of our own attempts to copy Christ. You, as a believer, have to feed that life and look after it. But always, always remember, you are not the one creating that life. You are only keeping up a life that you got from someone else. Even the best Christians that have ever lived are not acting on their own steam. They are only nourishing or protecting a life they could never have acquired by their own efforts. This is why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God, if there is one, or if they think there's not a God, at least they hope to deserve approval from good people. But Christians, Christians believe that any good they do comes from the Christ life inside them. They do not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And let me make it quite clear that when Christians say the Christ life is in them, they do not mean simply something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ, or of Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ, or trying to copy him. They mean, actually, that Christ himself is actually operating in them and through them, and that the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts today, that we are his fingers and muscles, the cells of his body. Perhaps that explains one or two things. It explains why this new life is spread not only by purely mental acts like belief, having faith, but by physical bodily acts like baptism and Holy Communion. You see, God never meant us to be purely spiritual creatures. That is why he uses material, physical things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this is rather crude and unspiritual, but God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Another possible objection is this. Why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise, and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is God not landing openly in force, invading this world? Is it that he's not strong enough? Well, Christians think he is going to land in force. We do not know when, but we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited until the Allied armies were marching into Nazi Germany and then announced he was on our side. God indeed will invade someday. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world realize what it will be like when he does that. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the playwright walks onto the stage... The play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying that you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none none of us will have any choice left at that moment. Then it will be God without disguise something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will then be too late to choose your side. Then will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen. Now, right now, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that time. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Wow, hearing C.S. Lewis write in that way, reading his exact words, makes me appreciate him and his writings all the more. You know, we're, we're completing another Christmas season, the celebration of the arrival of Jesus into our world about 2,000 years ago. What better time to look at ourselves honestly, to see, as Lewis would say, whether or not we have that Christ life within us, whether or not we've genuinely heard God speaking to us from his word, from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus. And consider this also. Lewis lived in a time and place when many pastors and churches were starting to water down mere Christianity. They were starting to deny basic things, even like Jesus, born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. Or that Jesus was conceived by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible teaches. Back in those days, in Lewis' days, many were starting to say that Jesus wasn't actually God, God in the flesh. Rather, they said, Jesus was godly, he was godlike. So too, many sermons in the pulpits of that day were saying that the idea of sin and of evil was really old-fashioned, out of date, even dangerous. That Jesus dying on the cross to atone for sin, well, it was just an ancient myth. Jesus was, in their opinion, in those days, merely a good and wise teacher. Well, C.S. Lewis stood against all of that all of that watering down and distorting of mere Christianity. And as we just heard, Lewis himself was convinced by biblical teaching on the authority of God's word. He believed it on authority. And he believed that there was coming a day, a a final day of history, when God will break through visibly, and Jesus visibly and bodily will return as judge of all people. Lewis says that on that day, everyone will experience something, quote, so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will then be too late to choose your side. Too late then, says Lewis. How very true. If you're not sure about yourself on that final day, What about trying something we recently talked about in a past episode? Simply trying to pray to God. Even if you don't know much about him, just set aside a time and go into a private place where you can just talk to God. Talk to him out loud, I would suggest. Sometimes our thoughts or silent words can cause us just to wander a bit mentally. Talk out loud to God as you would talk to any other person especially as you're talking to a good friend who understands. And as you're talking to God in prayer, the Bible says that God will indeed listen. In fact, the Bible says more. It says God will not turn anyone away who is sincerely trying to find him, to someone who's honestly and humbly seeking him. Ask God in prayer, among other things, what you're searching for. What are you looking for? And maybe... As we talked in that previous episode, you could ask him for a sign, something that he would put in your life that will indicate to you personally that he is indeed listening and that he would seek to be your God. And may it be that God will put in you that new life, as Lewis calls it, the Christ life. It doesn't come from your own doing. It comes from above. It comes from Jesus himself. What better way to enter into the new year by living, for the first time, that whole new kind of life, a life with Jesus truly in you and you in Him. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down. Bye.